Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. Haley Fretz. We're back. It's Monday, August 2nd, and we are smack dab in the middle of the Olympics. All sorts of cycling events happening at the moment. We're going to talk through, well, basically what happened between the last episode and this episode, which include time trials and some BMX and some other stuff. And a bit of a bit of a primer, basic primer, on track events, which started... Well, here in the U.S., overnight last night started on Monday in Tokyo, uh, which was yesterday here. Anyway, they've begun already, and by the time you hear this, a bunch of them will already have run. So if you're watching those track events and you're wondering what on earth you are watching, we're going to try to help out a little bit. Just just the basics. We've got most of the usual crew with us here today. No Abby Mickey. Abby is getting married in Latvia this week. She's off all week. Doing fun Latvian stuff with Tom's. So, just the four of us. How are you, James? I'm doing all right. Hanging in there. And Shadi Dave. Hello. How's the little one? Oh, she's ace. Not bad at all. We've we've got rid of one this week at a day camp, so we've only got one on our hands this week. That's lovely. Mine's teething, so that's fun. Uh... <laughs> Good luck with that, mate. Good luck with that. <laughs> that's all right kaylee that's the only hard thing you have to deal with from now on it, it's all downhill from here you're good oh good yeah that, that's exactly what people keep telling me that, yep. yeah like really really it just you know the hardest possible moment is like four months in and then everything else from everything from else is really just, easy just peaches and cupcakes and mm-hmm. all just lovely completely you're good good i look forward to that dane how are you this morning yeah doing fine thanks all right before we get into today's episode Shadi Dave, what are we learning about Continental? We've got Olympic-flavoured Adri today because if you've been watching the Tokyo Olympics, the eagle-eyed amongst you will have spotted a a few things. Yep, Continental tyres on, well, many winning bikes. First up, there's uh, Richard Carapaz winning the men's road racing style. Then Tom Pedcock blowing the field away in the men's uh, cross country on top secret tyres, or not quite top secret tyres. Yep, both continental tyres there. But not everyone can get to the Olympics, but you can ride the same tyres as the Olympic champions. Whether that's uh, competition tubulars, race king tubulars, or any of Conti's wide range of tyres, there's one that's sure to be right for your type of riding. With Black Chili, Vectron, Active Comfort and more technology all wrapped in precision German handmade tyres, you can't go wrong. So, chapeau to Billy and Tom. Uh, Enjoy riding on Continental Tyres and thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring today's episode. I think maybe before we get into... The Olympics, because we have a lot to talk about the Olympics. Like I said, we're going to do a little track primer. We're going to talk about the events that have happened in the last week. We're also going to look at a bunch of controversy that has popped up just in the first couple days of, actually, first day of the track events. Uh, We're going to talk about handlebars snapping off the Aussie Team Pursuit bike, a potentially stolen Team GB fork, kinesio tape on shins, of an entire team when they maybe don't have shin injuries. Why might that be? We'll get into all that in a little bit. But first, there's some other things from around the world of cycling that I think we should probably 
chat through. So, Dane, I'll start with San Sebastian. A pretty fantastic victory for a young American rider. Yeah, the first American World Tour One Day win in more than a decade, uh, which is kind of wild because there was a period where we had plenty of decent riders at least, but we just there were there weren't a lot of great one day specialists there. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't even know if it's fair to to say that Nielsen Paulus is a great one day specialist, but he, much like uh, you know, a number of riders over the past month or so at the Tour de France and, and uh, at the Olympics as well, he timed an attack to perfection. Uh, he joined a, a, a really nice move towards the end of the race, uh, got in a, a group with Matej Mohoric and Mikhail Froelich Honore. And, uh, you know, we've seen how strong Horch is at the Tour de France. He was quite a, a big engine there. And that trio was able to stay clear of a pretty strong group uh, towards the end of that race. I mean, Julien Alaphilippe, Valcom a couple of other, uh, Egan Bernal, a couple of other uh, good riders together towards the front near the end of that race. But as we've seen so many times in the past several weeks, they just weren't able to or, or weren't willing to join up together and chase down this move. And so... Nielsen Palace and this trio got clear, and yeah, Palace's first ever pro win uh, at the World Tour level happened to be this World Tour one day, which is really cool. Uh, just I think that the for the last yeah many many years, this has not been something that the U.S. has seen, and I'm not sure Nielsen Palace is going to do this again anytime soon. But the fact that he's done it at all is is pretty cool, particularly one month, basically within the same month as Sepkus uh, winning a Tour de France stage for the first time for the U.S. in a decade. Uh, so kind of maybe a little bit under the radar, but uh, the U.S. having the best year they've, they've had quite some time. Excellent work, Nielsen. I think uh, it was a good race to watch. It's a fun race to watch. It's always a good, I mean, it's usually just, it's, it's a post-Tour de France race. And this time it was a post-Tour and post-Olympics. And there were, you know, riders literally flying back from Tokyo for this thing. Uh, on the women's side in particular, actually, the I think the entire podium had just come back from Tokyo, at least the top two. Uh, and another American in second, right? Yeah, Annemiek van Vleuten had a nice day. We, sh- we should just mention first that she, she won the race and uh, has had a really nice two weeks or so. Uh, I'm, I'm, I thought that was just a given these days. Yeah, well, you know, she didn't win the Olympic road race, even if she celebrated it. <laughs> but to be fair, I think across the board, she's had a really nice period here, about a month or so, of uh, just being clearly stronger than the rest. Uh, and, and I think that was very apparent at San Sebastian, which is a race that suits her perfectly. Uh, but yeah, Ruth Winder, as you mentioned, finished second of that race. So an American up there as well. Uh, both of those riders just coming back from the Olympics. Tatiana Goderzo was the one who finished third. She wasn't at the Olympics, but uh, basically another instance of Van Vleuten just being way ahead of the field. Ruth Winder was the only rider within a minute of her, and then Goderzo was 135 back. So it was a pretty... Uh, Those two riders are pretty well ahead of that field uh, in the race at San Sebastian. But yeah, Van Vleuten, I think, you know, she had a, I don't want to say she had a slow start to the year because she did win Dwarves and she won the Ronde van Vlaanderen, which is, you know, pretty good. But Movistar picked her up this year. She was their huge off-season signing. And, you know, the Ardennes weren't, that didn't go quite as well as as probably she'd hoped. And uh, I think Movistar has to be happy that they, they won the big Spanish one day on the world tour. Uh, with their with their new acquisition. I've got to say, I'm really happy to see the race back after a year out due to COVID because I did have a, a few worries about it actually 
coming back at all because it's a sort of uh, it's it's a sort of race that could quite easily have been sidelined for good. But it's it's better than that because they've really sort of made a good weekend out of it now. They've got that uh, circuit the Getcho elsewhere in the back region, that Nizolo one, and that one's getting bigger and bigger as bigger as well. So all's good in the Basque region. Which shot he's happy about because you're about to move back there, aren't you? Yeah, December. So be warned. I'll be getting a worse haircut <laughs> than ever. <laughs> getting big on Gattle Basques, that sort of stuff. Oh, man. All right, let's move on from San Sebastian. Uh, we don't need to dwell on that one too much. Just some interesting results, I think. Uh, elsewhere on my list of non-Olympic things, something a little bit less positive here at the moment, uh, there's been this sort of ongoing tiff between Patrick Lefebvre uh, and Sam Bennett. Well, Patrick Lefebvre and a lot of different things, but in this particular instance, Patrick Lefebvre and Sam Bennett. What's the latest, Dane? What 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 was so basically he he has a column in a Belgian newspaper and he uses it to spout off on a somewhat regular basis. And this week, or I should say, end of last week, uh, he had some choice words for Sam Bennett. Yeah. Uh, so in his head newsblad column, he sounded off, I guess, on a number of things uh and kind of towards the end of his uh talking about a couple of different uh writers of his uh he started talking about sam bennett who of course was supposed to go to the tour de france was expected to go to the tour de france and then didn't go to the tour de france uh he was off of the roster due to knee pain um and and basically right after that announcement came out a few weeks ago lefevre publicly questioned his his knee pain, uh, which was pretty unusual for for the team boss to question his own rider's injury. Um, and then in this week's column, you know, Bennett is leaving the team at the end of the year. And uh, Lefebvre said, quote, uh, about Sam Bennett, quote, for me, he's the pinnacle of mental weakness, leaving Bora and moaning to everybody about how he was bullied and almost broke and depressed only to return 14 months later. It's the same as women who still return home after domestic abuse. Uh, Bennett is reportedly going to Bora Hanskroa next year, returning to that team, and that's what uh, Lefebvre was talking about there. So, yeah. He's just such an asshole. <laughs> it's just... Uh, we'll, we'll put an explicit uh, marker on this podcast, but goddamn, it's over and over and over and over and over over again you you mean you 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 could list off 20 different instances of of lefevre i would say putting his foot in his mouth but he doesn't seem to really care about the reaction to it in fact i would say that he actually likes it i would say that he is going for reaction from people at this point uh and he's just such an ass he really is what gets me is that the belgian media news bag gives him the the space in a newspaper to actually write this sort of stuff. Surely there's somebody there who's going, actually, this probably isn't going to go down too well, or this isn't suitable for, not not just this day and age, but just isn't suitable full stop. Like if, if we are putting an explicit content warning on this podcast, I would like to use a very strong word that the Australians are fond of, but I won't, because <laughs> he is an absolute, oh, it, you, you wonder what he's playing at. You really do. And you wonder why sponsors stick behind him. He moans all the time that he's not got enough money for a team, not got enough money to keep riders, not got... 
well, why do you think that is, Mr. Patrick? Yeah, such and such. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the sad reality is that still, I mean, we're talking about bike racing here, right? And Lefebvre still runs a team that is still really quite successful when it comes to results. And the sad fact of the matter is a lot of sponsors still mainly care about exposure and results and race winnings and that, that sort of thing. And he still delivers on all that stuff. So if he happens to be a complete asshole in the process, the sad fact is that a lot of companies will turn a blind eye unless there is some financial some, some financial um, consequence to, to what, he's, what he's been spouting out. And up to date, there hasn't been any. So, you know, and, you know, the fact that he has a regular column in that newspaper, I mean, they, they, they clearly are reaping the benefits in terms of exposure and traffic and that sort of thing by continuing to let him just, you know, just spew out all this garbage. So oh, yeah. it works, works perfectly for Het Newsblad because, well, every endemic cycling media site picks it up. It gets picked up elsewhere. You know, it's, it's, it's from a... <laughs> From their perspective, I'm still I, I'm I'm kind of with Shadi in that I'm I'm a little bit amazed that an editor didn't pick out that particular line because um, it's just so grotesque. But I'm not surprised in the slightest that they continue to give him a platform for sure. I do, you know, I wonder like, you know, Specialized is a major sponsor, for example, and and they spend quite a bit of time promoting and and. Uh, trying to increase diversity within cycling and make it a more, more welcoming place and all these things, and then they put their money behind a team like that. Uh, year after year after year. Year after year after year after year. And, you know, and there's there's obviously quite popular riders on that team. You've got Al Philippe on that team. But, man, that like there's got to be a line at some point, and I just wonder where it is. I really do. Uh, for, for the sponsors, I mean. Like, I mean, the line... Line for for me and Lefevre, I think, you know, he's always been a bit um, brusque and rough around the edges. But I think it was probably the, the Ilio Kaisa uh, grabbing the waitresses behind in Argentina incident, and then Lefevre basically <laughs> just defending his rider and coming down to the wrong side of that one. That was the one that kind of ended any um, respect I had for Patrick Lefevre. <laughs> Regardless of how good a bicycle team he is able to create, uh, and man, this is this just adds to that. Like I said, there's a long, there's a laundry list of of things like this, and I just wonder. Yeah, I wonder where the line is. And, and granted, you know, there are cultural differences, but I don't think that that sort of thing is is that the, there's there's no cultural lines around. Uh, well, being an absolute tool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like writing sentences comparing, uh, basically like belittling domestic abuse and mental health all at, all at one go. Um, I just I don't even know what else to say about it. He just he just absolutely frustrates me, and the fact that the fact that he continues to exist in cycling absolutely frustrates me. So maybe we'll just leave that there. Uh, I think our anger is known and noted. Uh, we don't have a whole lot else we can actually do about it, so. But no, you do wonder, like, it, it, as you say, it's a, a, a winningest team. It's wins coming out of it everywhere. You do wonder if they had, um, somebody leading the team who was, yeah, more diplomatic, knew what to say, when to say, and they could actually bring on bigger sponsors, more money, and become 
this, I don't want to say international team because they are an international team, but not a very Belgian, Belgian-centric team. Like the feel of it is it's, it's a very Belgian team. They could feel more like... Um, Those are the only sponsors you can find. Yeah, exactly. Sponsors. You could bring on. You could bring on huge sponsors from wherever with with wins like that. You just wouldn't have to look in this little country of Belgium, which I absolutely love. But yeah, you could bring bring sponsors from the US, anywhere across the world. I I don't really get the sense that um, he faces much backlash within the kind of s- smaller circle that the Kunin Quickstep is is in and. Yeah, maybe this kind of thing prevents him from getting the bigger sponsors, but I think part of the reason that he continues to say things like this or, or do things like he does is that the backlash tends to be minimized. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the Anglophone media mostly, and you don't, I don't think he really gets much from other sources you know, around him, and so he just keeps saying and doing these kinds of things, and I don't really expect it to change as long as Head Newsplot keeps giving him a platform. So... Let's leave it there. I can't. I'd like to talk about happier things than that. Uh, let's talk about the Olympics. We're smack dab in the middle of the Olympics. We've got a lot going on. So since the last episode and today, we've had, as I said, a bunch of BMX races. We're not going to go. We're not really going to talk about the BMX. Sorry, BMX fans out there. Uh, we don't ride BMX. I don't really know anything about BMX. <laughs> and so it, I think it would be disingenuous for us to pretend that we are experts in BMX for, for like one episode out of, out of the entire year. So we'll kind of just leave that to the side, but there have been a couple other events that we are, uh, that are in our wheelhouse, right, Dane? Yes. Like the time trial, I assume we're trying to get that here. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Very much in our wheelhouse. Yeah. The time trial, I think both the men's and women's events, there were some, some cool storylines there. Uh, on the women's side, we had Annemiek van Vleuten taking the big win, which was not unexpected, but I think for her, it meant a whole lot because of, well, a lot of things. I mean, she had a very frustrating road race for many reasons, one of which was not winning and, you know, another of which was the fact that she celebrated despite not winning. Uh, but the fact that she was able to kind of come back and, and win the Olympic TT gold was really big for her. And, you know, van Vleuten, the, the Olympics five years ago in, in Rio, I think, was it was a really big moment for her career. Uh, she, of course, had a really bad crash at the Olympics five years ago. Uh, but it was also a, a it came at a moment when she was really starting to kind of reach that next level, which she has since been on, basically, uh, ever since then. Uh, so to come back and, and, you know, kind of after that very frustrating end to her Rio experience, uh, pull off a gold medal five years later. Uh, I think it's it's got to be really great for her, and uh, I know she was she was pretty pleased with the way things turned out in that in that time trial, and uh, took a pretty clear win over Marlon Russer uh, with uh, Breggen, uh just a little bit behind Russer. So yeah, I, I think the Dutch had a nice yeah it, th- things kind of came together for them after a, a rough opening few days across the board in the cycling events for the Dutch. Pretty dominant win. I mean, 56 seconds over Rooster and a minute two over Anna van der Breggen in a time trial that took half an hour. That's that's serious. It's a serious gap in a 30-minute time trial. Though she had something to prove and really wanted that one, clearly. Uh, and has been, as you say, basically since Rio, has been on this, on this different level. Uh, she... I, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never forget chatting with uh, Megan Garnier 
at the the bottom at the finish uh in Rio and her saying that like she just couldn't get her head around how fast Annemiek van Vluten had gone up that final climb in Rio. She'd never seen her climb like that before and basically van Vluten has stayed at that level like you said ever since has been dominant ever since. So for her, I think the Olympics they were what they were the inspiration for whatever that that increase wherever the increase came from and remain a massive inspiration for her clearly I mean, you could see the emotion at the on the podium uh in tokyo uh on both podiums in tokyo i as a sort of side note i i um there was a she posted something on instagram uh, and kiesenhofer the, the winner of the women's road race posted a comment on it basically just saying like thank you for being an upstanding human being <laughs> on the podium she was, even though she was massively disappointed and, and thought she had won that race for a while, I thought that the way that she handled that particular uh, podium and finish, and, you know, she could have she thrown a fit, right? She, she handled it very, very, very well, and I don't think a lot of athletes would have handled it as well as she did. Well, some kudos, I think, are worthwhile there. We should also give her some kudos for winning the time trial on Wednesday, getting on a plane flying from Japan to Spain and then winning a one-day race. I mean, that the, the jet lag, I, I feel like I would have been out for like a week, you know, just trying to, and she <laughs> she was not. She went and won a bike race, a world tour bike race against some world tour talent. So impressive from Anamik Van Vliet. I keep telling you all about my about my my jet lag trick, and none of you ever seem to listen. Maybe she does the jet lag trick, like the, uh, you know, 18 hours of fasting before you before you land in the morning of your of your flight. It totally works. No, really? But I like eating. I also like the problem. Yeah, (laughs) I maybe like eating more than I like sleeping, and so therefore it's just not the balance is not there, James. I just can't do it. I dare say, if you're trying to to win a bike race after flying from Tokyo to 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 Europe, then that might be higher on your priority list. Then I might give a shot, but generally I come home and I just nap for like three days. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, Men's time trial, Dane. What happened? Yeah, another dominant performance and another I think feel good win. For Primus Roglic, who won the men's TT, the 44.2-kilometer men's TT by just over a minute, pretty clearly ahead of the field there was Primus Roglic. And, you know, it came only one month after he crashed at the Tour de France. Uh, That happened on June 28th, and he won the Olympic TT on July 28th. So for, for him to go from being covered in bandages and scrapes and bruises and, you know, just look generally quite unhappy and and to come back and, and be fit enough to win a gold medal in the Olympic time trial against some really strong talents, uh, I think you got to hand it to Primoz Roglic, and he was very happy there on the podium. Uh, it had been quite a tough period for him. And just after the road race, it, it, it kind of wasn't clear that he was going to be you know, that much of a contender in the TT. Um, and and that was that's kind of a big deal. I mean, Slovenia had one spot in the TT, and they gave it to Roglic, which they they also have a pretty good time trialist. They have another guy who's pretty good at time trialing in Slovenia, but it was Roglic who had the, the time trial spot, and he delivered. Uh, so good on Roglic for doing it. Uh, the rest of the podium, Tom Dumoulin in second to win the silver medal, also really feel good kind of result after his long hiatus from racing, and he comes back and he's able to medal at the Olympics. And Rowan Dennis was third. So a nice podium there. Uh, spare a thought for Stefan Kung, who missed out on a medal by less than one second, which is really rough. Uh, I think, you know, Kung is a pretty pure time trial 
kind of guy. He he time trials and you know maybe some breakaway stages here and there with Roglic, with Dumoulin, and 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 uh, even with Dennis. Although Dennis is you know pretty focused heavily on time trials these days, but they're riders who can get a lot of results in in, in a lot of races. And and Kung, it's all about the time trials. And so for him to come that close to a medal and and not get it and have to wait another three years. I kind of feel bad for poor Stefan Kung. Pretty brutal. To return to Roglic real quick. I do think it's... I, I, I like that result because I feel like after this year's tour where Roglic crashed and dropped out and last year's tour where he was overhauled in a time trial, granted a very unusual one because it was, what, 30K of flat and then up a giant mountain. I feel like the sort of the, the the general sentiment is that, oh, well, he's just sort of been overtaken by Pogacar in, in all areas. Pogacar's a better climber. Pogacar's probably a better time trialist. I'm not sure the latter is actually true. And I think that this result is is some evidence for the fact that Roglic still might be a better time trialist, which, which makes me quite pleased ahead of the next time those two go head to head sounds like Roglic is going to the Vuelta but I would imagine that you know we'll see a Roglic v Pogacar duel in next year's Tour de France and this is just another data point to to suggest that that's actually that's a pretty good battle because I do think that in general Pogacar is probably a slightly better climber these days uh, and probably only getting better but from a TT perspective Roglic seems to have maybe a bit of an edge and and that victory in in you know in an in Olympics against a a field of riders that are just primed for it shows how very, very good he is in that particular discipline. It's time trial in its purest form, isn't it? You're not, you're not fatigued from previous days racing at like a Grand Tour. It's there for that particular moment. And there's not many races that the pros turn up to, that time trials at least, that you can say that is the outcome every every day. Yeah, you've got chrono donations and stuff like that at the end of the season. But it's a pure time trial. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it proves that y- your point exactly, Kaylee. Let's move on from what's already happened. I kind of want to talk about the controversies here before we get into the track explainer because I feel like the track explainer, there's a fair number of our listeners out there that are going to be aware of how track works. Uh, <laughs> so they, will, they don't need to listen to that. So let's take the, the, the brief. And again, it is going to be brief. We're not, we're not doing deep dives in each of these events. The brief track explainer for the end of this show, and let's talk controversy. So we're going to stick today's nerd nugget in the middle of the episode. James, we've got a pile of these. We've got a whole bunch of of controversy that's come out of the first couple days of track racing. Uh, they're all tech related, so they all fit right in your segment. What what <laughs> what should we start with here? Uh, we yeah, we definitely have a few things. So. First and foremost, I think maybe we'll start with a claim by a Dutch company um, who is claiming that the British team track bike design, uh, that, that rather widely publicized design by Lotus and Hope, um, they're claiming that the design is actually, uh, I guess we'll just generously, generously say borrowed from them. Um, so there was an article published in the in NOS.nl, the kind of main Dutch TV station, talking about how uh, the front end in particular, or actually, you know, really honestly, both ends seemingly, uh, look very curiously similar to uh, a bike that was designed by Koo Cycle. Um, you know, very similar, super widely spaced uh, seat stays and chain stays, or seat stays and uh, fork blades. 
Um, and Richard McAnge, who, who I guess had, he had done a bunch of work in Formula One, but he has also worked with, with 3T and other bike brands in the past. Um, they're making it very clear that they think the UK uh, stole their design. So this seems to be, uh, this is something that is still very much brewing. Um, as far as I can tell, there has been no official word from GB Cycling just yet. We're still working on digging up some stuff there. Um, but that is, I mean, if it's a coincidence, it's a very strange coincidence. Um, is it one of those things, though, where, like, all time trial bikes have started to look basically the same because when you run it through a computer, like CFD just tells you to do the same shape, right? And so, so is it is it one is it is it truly like stealing a design at that point, or is it just literally everyone's using the same software, running the same analysis, and coming up with similar solutions? You know, there's an actual term for this in in the engineering world called you know basically multiple discovery where. You know, people come to the same conclusion completely on their own, completely independently. Um, and maybe that is the case. I mean, that that's always something that that needs to be determined. Um, again, I don't know what exactly Richard McAnge is going to and, and their crew at, at Cycle is going to do about this. Um, that, that's unclear. I don't know exactly how you would prove that GB Cycling borrowed the design. Uh, I'm not really sure how all that works. I mean, it, it is a very curious coincidence. Um, you know, I would I would love to give GB Cycling the benefit of the doubt, but who knows? I mean, it's pretty pretty curious. Um, so that's something that we'll keep following up on. It seems peculiar that it's just coming out the woodwork now from Coup Coup Cycles because it's not as if they've Hope and British Cycling have released this bike on the world in the past week. They announced it, and we even had a video on the website. We sent Phil to the Hope factory up in Yorkshire. Um, before lockdown last year, if I remember rightly, and it, so it, we've had a web, we've had a video up on the website on this particular bike for over a year. So it does seem weird timing for them to say, "Hey, look here, you're copying us." And like Kaylee says, have, have they all come to it at the same time because of the the different? Well, the same data that everybody gets. Everybody says all road bikes are looking the same now, where you drop stays and whatnot. So why aren't why isn't it exactly the same sort of situation for time trial bikes or track right, bikes as right. the case would be? Right. Or as the pink bike crew would like to say, it looks like a session. <laughs> <laughs> Mountain bike jokes. Most of our audience won't understand that, but yes, most bikes look like a session these days. <laughs> I, I was just laugh, laughing to be, to, to get me the fun of it all. <laughs> so anyway, that is something that we will continue to dig in and dig into. Uh, we're trying to get some comments from pertinent parties and see what they say here. Um, but yeah, we'll find out. I mean, yeah, I, I agree, Shadi. It, it is interesting, the timing. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe they wanted to wait on purpose until the actual Olympics. Who, who knows? But if, if they were trying to protect their intellectual property, you would have thought that, you know, they would have brought this up sooner. But again, I don't, I don't I'm not really sure. It's kind of strange. Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, who knows? Maybe they did, right? Maybe there's proceedings already, already going. Um, if I am... If I'm trying to get the maximum uh, PR slash marketing bump from this, I'm probably shouting about it right before the Olympics start. So, which you can't blame them for, <laughs> right? They're you know they're trying to they're trying to sell their stuff just like everybody else. But you're selling to a very small market, aren't you? These bikes are going to be costing 
15, 20 grand a pop. It, it is. I mean, it is a very small market, but I think more, I think the, the bigger impact is just in terms of the brand recognition. I mean, I had never heard of this company, Qcycle, before before this whole thing popped up. So, you know, in, in that sense, then it worked. Great success. Great success. Uh, Aussie Team Pursuit handlebars fell off, James. This is um, among the things to fall off on your bicycle while riding it. This is at the top of the list of things you don't want to fall off, correct? I would agree. So uh, Aussie team member Alex Porter, uh, he was in the middle of the men's team pursuit uh, when uh, his handlebar broke off, off of his Argon 18. Uh, it's, it's unclear exactly who the manufacturer of the handlebar was. Apparently there's, there's a bit of controversy as far as, or a bit of confusion as far as whether this was made by Argon 18 or... Um, the Australian firm Bastion, who does a lot of 3D printing stuff. Um, but basically, the handbar broke off. I mean, it, it, you know, pursuit bike base bars these days more often kind of look like, they kind of look like a like an inverted Y, sort of. And uh, essentially what happened to him is it, it broke, like kind of like right at the, the intersection of the Y, like the whole kind of bigger base section. Uh, the cent- essentially, the stem just like snapped off. Um, and it looked like a very clean break. Um, you know, there are a couple of holes there, which may have acted as a stress riser. It's hard to say, but you know, the, 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 um, uh, the suggestion that Bastion made this seems unlikely looking at pictures because it's a big hollow, hollow carbon fiber structure. I mean, maybe Bastion made it. We are still waiting for comment from them to, to confirm or deny. Brief update on this since recording this episode. Bastion has come out with a statement saying that it was indeed their handlebar. To quote that statement, Bastion said, Our team is working with the Australian Olympic team to understand the cause behind the failure of one of our handlebar units during the four-person Australian Pursuit Challenge at the Tokyo Olympics overnight. Bastion co-founder Ben Schultz said, Our first concern was for Alex Porter and the entire team. We're in constant contact with the Australian Olympic cycling team and coaches and give our assurances that we are using all means available to investigate why this occurred. So there you have it. It was indeed a bastion bar. Of course, the rest of this conversation will make slightly less sense because we didn't know this when we were having it, but there you go. Update. But either way, regardless of who made it, that you don't want your handlebar to break off. No, I, I mean one of the one of the strange things to me is that track bikes are like pursuit bikes. Weight doesn't really matter, right? I mean they they try to keep them reasonable, but it doesn't. It fundamentally doesn't really matter because you get up to sixty plus kilometers an hour and you stay there for three forty five or whatever the the four minutes the sub four minutes that whatever the, the team pursuit times are these days. And you're pretty much just fighting wind resistance. You're not accelerating after that initial like half lap, three quarters of a lap. Uh, and so building it super light would not be a benefit. But it's just it's it's weird all around to me because, like I said, weight is not a concern. It's basically just aerodynamics and strength that you want. And so you'd think that they'd be massively overbuilt, particularly in a place like that, because basically the the first. So so we'll get into this in a little bit. But, you know, a team pursues a standing start, right? You're, you're, you're in blocks and you have a pretty massive gear on because that gear that gets you from zero to 10K an hour also has to keep you at 60-something kilometers an hour for most of the event. And so they're just 
absolutely wailing on those bars in the first half lap to get the bike going. And you want a massively, massively, massively overbuilt front end because of that, which makes this whole thing just very strange to me. I, I, I wonder, I mean, clearly it's a, it's a failure. It's a, like, like you said, stress risers from some holes in there or some other issue because there's no way that this thing was basically just built too light, right? That that there's there's no incentive to do that. So it's some some other issue. It, we're not. I mean, we can't say that this thing wasn't built too light. We can say that this this thing shouldn't have built shouldn't True. have been built too light. Um, you know, based on everything that you said, yeah. I mean, that it should have been overbuilt. It should have been made to accommodate riders that are very very above average in terms of strength and and uh, how much abuse they put on the thing. But clearly, something went wrong. Well, so we're looking into that a little bit. Um, there's some other, there's, there's, there's like other backstories to a couple of these stories, right? So we've got this sort of weird Bastion Argon 18. We're trying to figure out which, where the handlebars came from here. Related to the, the, the GB bike we were just talking about, like apparently there's a little bit of a tiff between Hope and Lotus who put this bike together, basically. Ronan's looking into that. So we, we'll, we'll hopefully have additional information on all of this uh in future episodes maybe maybe post olympics a lot of folks are not talking while we're in the middle of the olympics including uh a guy named dan bingham which brings us to our last sort of controversial point here so dan bingham uh i think we've actually had him have we ever had him on nerd alert before i don't, we, I don't think we've ever actually had him on the show i can't remember now He's anyway, we, we've chatted with him a bunch of times for various stories, uh, and he is an aerodynamicist and has is basically an, an aerodynamicist for hire uh, and is working with the Danish track program. Uh, and we've reached out to him about the thing that we're about to talk about, but he, as of yet, won't talk about it. What is going on here? What's what's on the shins of a team pursuit team? Well, apparently the Danish track riders have been uh, I guess spending a lot of time running and they all have shin splints or something. Um, so Chris, Chris Boardman uh, posted an interesting tweet about four hours ago uh, saying every rider with the same injury on both legs requiring medical tape down the front of their legs, coincidentally exactly where it would be aerodynamically advantageous. Hmm. Um, essentially in, in reference to uh, UCI track rec this was in, in response to the UCI track cycling Twitter page uh, referencing uh, another Olympic record for the Danish team. Uh, and essentially what he's talking about is they all have kinesio tape down the front of their shins, all four riders, and they all very curiously seem to have the same medical requirement uh, needing this kinesio tape. And the reason why he has brought this up is because, uh, you know, kind of having a, like a rough layer down the front of your legs at that point is has been shown to be somewhat aerodynamically advantageous. And they, yeah, seem to have gotten around the, the uh, I guess, whatever rule is in place to prevent stuff like that from being in place. The sockite rule, basically, isn't it? But basically, it, sort of, yeah. I mean, it's, We don't know if these guys have been doing the, um, the British sport of shin kicking. That might be the problem. <laughs> Just go and, go and Google it. Go and Google it. I don't, I don't think I want to Google that. <laughs> it's painful. What I'm really curious about, though, like if it really is advantageous to have like a rough surface on the front of your shins, and if it is a significant improvement to the point where, you know, you have riders who are seemingly trying to get around rules by using kinesio tape on the front of their legs, 
you know, would you have a similar advantage if you just grew your hair out just on, just only on the front of your shins? I, that was actually going to be my suggestion. Is that's what they should have done? I mean, like nobody nobody can tell you. Oh no, you must shave. You must shave this strip down your. Yeah, shin. like how, how how would the UCI combat that if all you did, like you know, let's say you had a bunch of riders with particularly hairy legs, and you just let their hair grow out on the front of their shins only? <laughs> I think it would work. I think it would work. I mean, yeah. So basically, the UCI has a lot of rules. Uh, the, the the pursuit rules generally pr pretty much mirror uh, like time trial rules, and you just can't have anything that isn't like structural or or needed you can't wear any extra clothing for example that would make you any faster so i you know i think back to um was it back when 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 ef was garmin and they were running those squirrel suits from castelli which castelli kept trying to say they were just like oh we just made the suits too small or something like that but no it was like they were, they were designed to do that right. they basically they stretched material kind of underneath, like in, like in, in the armpit, basically, to try to close up that hole. Those ended up being not legal under the UCI because it, that basically creates a fairing. Uh, you can't add things, you know, you, you couldn't like add a cone to your butt or something on, on a time trial bike just to make yourself more aerodynamic for, as, as an extreme example. This is obviously a a very minor example of this, but basically breaks the exact same rule. If if it can be proven that all four Danish pursuit riders indeed do not have shin splints or whatever medical condition is trying is requiring them to to tape up their shins, it would not surprise me in the slightest. In fact, I think it's very likely that the UCI comes in and says you can't do that going forward because that this is this is kind of how the sports actually kind of should work, right? Like. Teams try to find little loopholes. They try to push the boundaries. They try to find an advantage somewhere. The UCI goes, in some cases, yeah, that's fine. Oh, that, that's, that's within the rules. We think that's okay. That, that's just a clever way to do this. And then everyone's doing it next time. And then in other instances like this, which seem to break not just the letter, but also kind of the spirit of the rules, the UCI should probably just come in and say, mm, no, good try, cleverly done. You got to use it for a couple races but please take the tape off your shins. Yeah, and it seems unlikely when you have someone with as much recognition and visibility as Chris Borpin, who is calling this out, that it, it seems unlikely that the, that the UCI will just kind of just turn a blind eye and just not say anything about it. Yeah, I would imagine that that it is taken care of soon. I believe, I don't know if he's actually in Tokyo or not, So, but Mick Rogers is the is the technical coordinator over, over at the UCI now. Um, and so he's been, he's been the guy that we've been dealing with uh, for various... UCI rule related things this year and and I would imagine that he's going to hop on this one pretty quickly and probably take care of it and tell them to stop <laughs> basically do you think that it's uh, worth disqualify them then or do you think they're all up, up in their hotel room with sandpaper on their shins so in case the UCI people pop around I'll say people pop around and go no actually yeah we have we have damaged ourselves this is where we got tape on <laughs> I don't think you can disqualify him. I mean, wow, I don't, who knows? The UCI has done, you know, it's disqualified riders for, for other sillier things. Um, you know, the, like the bottle tossing to, to kid, like the, you know, it's done that before. It wouldn't surprise me, but I personally don't think you can disqualify him. I think you just, you know, you just doff your cap and say, well done. You found a little loophole. We're closing it now and you can't mm -hmm. do it anymore. And then you shake your finger and say no more. Yep. <laughs> 
and they'll find something else next time, right? Like that that's that's the that's the whole job of and again, we're not we don't 100% know that this is a Dan Bigham uh innovation, but it seems likely he's working with that team and he is their aerodynamicist for hire. You know, that that's his whole job is to find little tiny 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 things like this because at 65 kilometers an hour little tiny tiny things in an event that is often won by hundreds hundreds of a second or tenths of a second that that can be the difference between gold and bronze or gold and nothing should we should we start taking bets on how many everyday amateur road riders start putting kinesio tape on the front of their shins now i'm just gonna leave my a strip of of hairy leg down my shin that's what i'm doing do that <laughs> oh, that's a look. My wife will love that. Chris, you at Specialized, if you are listening to this right now, please, please put that into your wind tunnel testing. Right? Oh, that'd be fantastic. Dan, though, is renowned for, I suppose, he's come up through the ranks doing stuff on the cheap, doing stuff uh, with, without massive amounts of funding from British Cycling. He's, he's managed to get, get to where he is now. I buy an alternative route, and this is very much an alternative route of finding marginal gains by using a bit of sticky tape. Oh, well, yeah, I, I love that sort of thing. I mean, the, the, it, I think it speaks volumes to, I think it speaks volumes about his sort of, you know, creativity and, and just ability to kind of see outside the lines. Yeah, and there's, there's a couple individuals like this in the sport um, who can make a pretty dramatic impact on on a team's ability to compete, not just in things like the team pursuit, but, you know, brought more broadly in, in just time trials on the road in general. I mean, Jonathan Vodders has talked a couple different times about how losing Robbie Ketchell, who is in basically a similar position uh, at Garmin basically led to them. They, they went from, if you will recall, being a favorite in basically every team time trial that they entered for a couple of years there. They took the, the pink Jersey of the Giro that way and then all of a sudden they lost Robbie and he actually went to Sky for a while. And I think he's basically now out of cycling. I actually don't know what Robbie's up to. Um, anyway, left the team and all of a sudden they were struggling in time trials because all that little stuff does make a difference. And, you know, Ronan and I talked quite a bit about this during the Tour de France with Jumbo Visma. In fact, that they were clearly just paying, paying attention to every single tiny detail. And as a result, we're getting really amazing TT results. Uh, and you could probably point to Primoz Roglic at the Olympics. He's basically riding what he would ride in a trade team set, setting, right? Going and winning the gold medal at the Olympics. Again, via sort of the the attention to detail of Jumbo Visma and second place too, actually, right? Tom Dumoulin, same, same thing. It does matter. It absolutely matters. And these individuals can have a dramatic impact on the results uh, as much as, as any sort of physiological coach, I would say. Anything else? Any other, uh, any other controversies come out of this Olympics? I think, that's, I think we've covered them. Tech ones anyway. That's all I've got right now. That's, I mean, considering that track cycling has only been going on for a day, <laughs> that's a pretty good list already at the moment. <laughs> we will keep an eye on anything else that happens in the track cycling world. Uh, Let's let's do a brief explainer. Let's do a brief track cycling explainer here. Now, as I said, we don't want to go super, super deep on this. The, the purpose of this brief explainer is to, well, if you just have no idea what you're watching, basically, which I think a lot of a lot of cycling fans don't you, you have very little opportunity to watch track cycling uh, 
maybe once every four or five years, right? And that's pretty much it. And so let's talk through let's talk through the events. So the the sort of full event list has changed slightly since uh, I would say sort of like the track heydays. Um, you know, there's no more individual pursuit except as part of the Omnium. There's a couple other little little changes, but it's still a pretty healthy collection of events. Uh, it's no swimming, but it does. There, there's plenty of medals that are going to be awarded uh, on the track in the next week or so. I was just going to say Nerd Nugget may be done at this point. And, you know, in another typical day, maybe I would bow out at this point. Um, but I am definitely sticking around for Kaylee's hot take on the number of track events versus <laughs> swimming events. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to get in trouble. Kaylee, what do you, what do you think? Are, are there too many swimming events, Kaylee? What do you think? There are too <laughs> many swimming events. There are too many, too many goddamn swimming events. It's just silly. But they're right? all so different, Kaylee. They're not. <laughs> they're, I understand that the strokes are very different, but anytime you have an athlete winning like 27 gold medals in one Olympic Games, they're not actually different. If it's Because guess what? The track racers are not winning BMX races. Primoz Roglic is probably unlikely to win the Madison if they were actually similar in that way. Those things would happen. There's enough. There's enough. Uh, the U.S. has 30, 30, 30 swimming medals. Half of our medal count so far in the United States is from swimming. And we didn't win every event. That's how many, that's how many medals there are in swimming. I'm just I'm just salty because we don't have the indiv individual pursuit in kilo anymore. We lost the individual pursuit in kilo. We had to like trade them basically for BMX. Uh, and meanwhile, swimming has I don't know fifty different medal events and actually added some this Olympic Games. There's all the the new mixed medley stuff going on. I will rant over. I will put you right though, Kaylee. <laughs> there has been a couple of BMXs come across the track racing. Due to their sheer well, so leg speed and power. And Christopher Blevins, the, the sole American in the cross-country race, is actually started off as a BMXer. But the difference is that he's not still both. And that, that's how swimming works. Anyway, the swimmers are going to be emailing me now. I enjoyed watching swimming for about three days, four days. And then by the time we got to the end of the week, I was like, I'm just, there's been enough of this. We've seen enough swimming. I'm over it. <clears throat> Kaylee.frets at soccertips.com. <laughs> <laughs> I switched over and started watching sailing yesterday, which is actually super sweet. Watching sailing was awesome. All right. Anyway, sorry, brief diversion <laughs> let's, there. Let's, James is trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> uh, let's let's briefly talk through the track events. So basically, track events are split into two broad categories. One is sprints, uh, and these are sort of if you if you if you're thinking body type, the sprint races are it's it's exactly like in track and field athletics you know these are much bigger athletes right they're they're bigger stronger more powerful and then the other side is the endurance events uh and that's where you'll see a lot of crossover with road cycling so you know that's where you'll see mark cavendish or viviani or or, or riders like that sort of make a transition and they can make that transition relatively relatively quickly and easily generally um because they're they're broadly similar physiological demands in the endurance events really brief again sprint you got the sprint uh match sprints basically so this is when you're going to see two riders against each other and they do sort of a best of three thing and then continue to move on and eventually you end up with the top two and they just sprint each other so it's three laps 
and I usually sort of like look at each other for a while and go really slow. Maybe they stop. This is where the term track stand kind of comes from. And then they sprint. And then whoever comes across the line wins. You're really not selling it. The sprint is really cool. I feel like it, it, you could hype it a little more because it, it's, I can hype, I, it's, it's super cool. A lot of it is not a sprint. It's kind of like a, it's like a quick draw, like it's a, like a duel in the, in the Wild West where you're just kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. And then the sprint happens and it's like they're going full speed. But it's a cool buildup period. And uh, it's really, well, I, uh, really unique. And I should say that, like, this is not the equivalent of, OK, go find a flat road and find your buddy and match sprint each other to try to get to the finish line. The nature of a velodrome, if you've never ridden one, means that that there's a whole lot of dynamics around how high you are on the boards because height on the boards is essentially you ha- you have a certain amount of you know was it energy kinetic a lot, energy a lot of potential energy there potential energy that's the word I'm looking for you have a lot of potential energy if you're higher up on the boards and so there's a whole lot of well just figuring out exactly who's going to be up higher when you're going to go when you're going to drop how quickly you're going to drop. Uh, there's a ton of tactics in a match sprint to the point where if you have somebody who's very astute at that sort of thing versus somebody who's just a stronger sprinter, the tactically astute rider on the track in a match sprint is going to win nine times out of 10. No I mean, question. it's something that we that have seen on occasion at the end of Paris-Roubaix, which of course ends at the Roubaix Velodrome. Yep. Um, especially if a, a small group of riders comes into the velodrome and they have a significant enough gap on whoever's chasing them, then, yeah, we do often see this. You come into the velodrome, they have to do a lap and a half, and they'll come cruising in, you know, they'll slow down an awful lot, and then it'll, it's sort of a cat and mouse game to see who who goes first and who is able to follow and that sort of thing. It's not, it's really not all that different from that. So if you if you watch, if you have watched Paris-Roubaix regularly and you've seen some of those finishes, it's very similar to that. Yeah, the major difference being that that the, the an indoor velodrome versus the Roubaix velodrome much higher, much steeper, and so the the all the potential energy uh, is basically just multiplied. And, right, it, and the riders are presumably less tired. And the riders are significantly less tired, and on track bikes, uh, which is also slightly different. Now the the match sprint kind of takes it takes a while to get through because we start off with thirty riders. They all do a two hundred meter uh, sprint, basically. And that's seeding, and then we go through, you know, twenty four, twelve, all the way down, and then we end up with semifinals and finals. There's repechages, and it's a whole. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lay out the entire system of getting to a final, but like I said, at the end, you've got two, and those two will race for the gold medal. Uh, and it's just first one across the line at the end of those laps. Team sprint, team sprint is super cool. So uh, this is another one of those instances where. There's a sort of inexplicable difference between the men's and the women's events. And there's a lot of this in track cycling uh, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So for some reason, who knows why, the men's team sprint is three riders and three laps. And the women's team sprint is two riders and two laps. I'm not sure who decided the women could only ride two laps at once. I don't know what would happen at the end of two laps. Something catastrophic, obviously. (laughs) But... That's the way it is for some reason. And basically, it's more of a three or two person time trial. And it's a standing start. Well, let's just take the men's race as a, as a way of explaining it. Standing start, you've got three riders and they will accelerate from the line again from a stop. 
at the end of the first lap, they'll, they'll obviously they'll, they'll line up in a, in a pace line. At the end of the first lap, the first rider will swing off and that rider is finished. They're done. And then at the end of the second lap, the second rider will swing off. They are finished. They are done. There's a, there's a, uh, a section of the track on the straight of the track where they have to swing off. Uh, you'll often see disqualifications in this event based on riders not swinging off either or they'll either swing off too early or too late. That's something to keep an eye on. But anyway, the, the, the riders swing off and then on the last lap of three, you have one guy left and that rider goes all the way around and then at the finish line, time is taken. Only one rider essentially has to finish. The other two are essentially lead out men. The team sprint is essentially, it's just a lead out, but without the bike race beforehand. But it's really cool to watch. It's really cool to watch, and it's just the the the, um, the positioning of the various types of riders is always really interesting uh, because the, the the need to get off the blocks really quickly is sort of is is paramount. But obviously, you need a rider in the back, that third rider for the men, the second rider for the women, who's able to go really really hard for three full laps basically and then and then close it out really really hard so you'll often see the strongest sprinter as the first one and by that i mean like the you know highest peak power to get off the line and then usually a very very good match sprinter at the back or a very good kilo rider for example at the back a chris hoy for example they're often very good at both of those things but if you're a very good kilo which is four laps you're going to be okay at the end of three laps Moving on. I believe that's Sir Chris Hoy to you, by the way. Sorry. Yeah. No, 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 because we won the Revolutionary War, so I don't have to say sir. That's that's how this works. Moving on to the Kirin. Now, this is sort of on the more endurance spectrum of the sprints, but it is still a sprint event. Uh, and this is the one behind a little motorcycle. And the motorcycle comes by, starts off at 30 kilometers an hour, works its way up to 50 kilometers an hour over 750 meters, so that's three laps, and then pulls off. And then you've got three laps. This one comes down to jockeying for position behind the moto. There are often extremely strong riders who will try to just basically take the the, the spot right behind the derny, is what it's called. Uh, take, the right, take the spot right behind the derny and try to hold on for that 750 meters after the derny pulls off that's very uh difficult to do most frequently a spot just behind that first rider is going to end up taking the victory but because of the rules around track sprint lanes being on the black line can be advantageous because riders have to come out and around you which obviously just like in athletics just like in track and field being on the outside means you go farther which means it's more difficult to get out and around a rider who's down in the black line. Uh, so there's a lot of dynamics in Kirin. It's super, super fast. They'll hit like 70 plus kilometers an hour. Uh, and the fact that it has a motorcycle in it makes it particularly interesting uh, because it does. It sets up, again, it, a lot of the track events are kind of designed to take sort of like everything you think about in, I don't know, a crit race or a big road race and compress it into like 90 seconds or two minutes, right? And that's kind of what this is doing. The Derny is the peloton, the lead out, right? And then basically once the Derny pulls off, you're in 750 meters to go on the Champs-Élysées, six riders near the front, who's going to take it? That's that's the kind of rough equivalent on the road. That gets us into endurance events. 
and the Team Pursuit, which has already started to kick off. We were talking about it earlier. Uh, this is four riders, four kilometers, standing start. Uh, you have to finish with three, and so you'll often see one rider take off and, and just stay off uh, somewhere in sort of the final third of the event. Just like in every track event, the banking is really what sort of defines a team's ability to work as a team in the team pursuit. So teams have spent hundreds of hours, thousands of hours practicing, uh, basically swinging up off of the front position of the four, swinging up onto the boards as they go around the corner without missing a beat, coming straight back down those boards and slotting into the final spot. It looks... It's one of those things at the Olympics that looks easy because the people that are doing it are so good at it. As somebody who's done a fair number of team pursuits in my life, it is incredibly difficult to do it like that. And if you miss coming back down by just a foot, foot and a half, it is brutal to try to get back up to speed, to try to get that wheel. And often it means that you're useless by the time it's your turn to pull again. So just like a team time trial out on the road where smoothness is speed, it's that, but just just exponentially more uh, in, a, in a team pursuit. Trying to swing up, come back down, and find that wheel without wasting energy is what, it, it, it's, what it's all about. And if teams can do that, even a team with slightly, quote-unquote, weaker riders, if you're smoother, you can be faster in the team pursuit. If you guys have anything else to add to these, just you know, stick your hand up in the air. I feel like I'm talking a lot. We we just we just seeing how far you can like dig yourself a hole with the track experts <laughs> that are going to take you to pieces once this podcast goes live. <laughs> I'm not a track expert, but I have raced a couple national championships, and I have raced in the track a fair amount. Uh, I would not say that I'm you know clearly not at the Olympics, but uh, I know how the events work. Next up on. The endurance list, the Madison. This is the one where they swing each other on and off. Uh, the men's race, these are basically two rider teams from each nation. The men's race is 200 laps. The women's race is 120 laps. Again, we're deep into the endurance space now. This is the one that Mark Cavendish and Bradley Wiggins used to race together. Uh, points are awarded for sprints every 10 laps with the top four teams awarded five, three, and two, five, three, two, and one points respectively. You also get points if you lap the field, which happens quite frequently in Madison. You'll see teams go for an early lap. Uh, you'll see lots of teams end up getting lapped near the end. That is, uh, <laughs> trying to explain the tactics of the Madison briefly it's basically impossible uh so just know that those are the sort of the, the the broad rules that you get points uh you get points every 10 laps you get points for lapping other teams or lapping the the, the field basically and that is what defines the tactics of this event uh they'll still you basically usually have in your team you have a sprinter and a more endurance oriented rider so think again Cavan wiggins you put Wiggins on for the, the, the long stints and then you get Cav on to win the sprints when you need points. Do you know why it's a confusing uh, event? It's because it's American, isn't it? It was the first held at Madison Square Garden in, in New York. And yeah, you Americans <laughs> only do confusing sports. That American football <laughs> malarkey and yeah, you like high scoring games, don't you? 
It's true. It's true. Uh, trying to keep track of of where riders are and how many points everybody has is 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 difficult. Uh, hopefully, there are good announcers for this event, and they can help with that. And there's usually a, a points tally somewhere up on the TV screen. But again, that's the basics. I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but the the basics are: you've got a sprinter, you've got a more endurance oriented rider. You switch them on and off with those hand slings based on what is needed at any given point in time. So if you're trying to lap the field, probably better off doing it with Bradley Wiggins than Mark Cavendish. If you're trying to win a sprint, probably better off doing it with Mark Cavendish than Bradley Wiggins. And so you you swing each other in or out of the event. The Madison has not been in the Olympics since 2012. And back then it was a men's only event. So Tokyo is actually the first ever women's Olympic Madison, which is super cool. And then we get into the Omnium, and uh, this is the part that has me kind of salty about swimming, <laughs> because, because basically what they appear to have done here in the last couple of Olympics is they've taken a bunch of individual events that should be getting medals, and they just stuck them all into one event and made it a point structure, so there's only one medal available. And I think that's a damn shame, because there's a scratch race in the Omnium, and a scratch race is just literally a race. Start, race, finish. It's just a race. Uh, tempo race, which is riders accumulating points by winning sprints, taking laps, basically a Madison but solo. There's an elimination race where the last rider, every second lap, is pulled out of the race. Uh, these are all, it's also kind of also called a missing out. Um, that one's super, super, super fun. And the tactics around that one are also very interesting because you have some riders the sort of more endurance-oriented riders who will often just sort of sit at the front and just try to stay there because they figure that they won't get eliminated if they're just hanging out near the front. You'll have other riders who are the, the punchy sprinters who will dangle near the back on the assumption that they can kick around another rider whenever they need to to prevent themselves from being eliminated. I love the missing out, the elimina elimination race. It should be its own event, but it's not. It's part of the Omnium. And then a points race, uh, which is points awarded at intermediate sprints every 10 laps, five points for first place, three points for second, two for third, one for fourth. Points are doubled in the last sprint. And again, you get 20 points for lapping the field or lose 20 points for losing a lap on the field. That's 25K for the men and 20K for the women. Points from all of these races are all added up. And at the end, you get a winner of the Omnium. I think it's a damn shame that there aren't just medals awarded for each one of these, and I don't really understand why, other than the fact that the IOC is told cycling it can only have so many medals, and so it's combined them all. But that's sad. What what we've got to remember is they've got rid of some track events, so we can have BMX in, freestyle, and race at the Olympics. But yeah, it is upsetting that, it, why can't it just produce a couple more medals? It's not that blooming hard, is it? <laughs> Okay, that's the thing. Do you think maybe we should take some medals away from swimming and give them to cycling? Absolutely. Let's take some swimming medals and give them to cycling. That's exactly what we should be doing. Yeah, I'm like, I loved, like, BMX is amazing. And 100% BMX should be in the Olympics. It's super cool. It's a modern sport. I don't know, how, I don't know if you guys watched much of the BMX over the last couple of days, but, like, yeah, it's just incredible. Some of the things that they do on a bicycle are unbelievable. I, I'm not a huge fan of judge sports still. But I still think that BMX is really cool. And obviously the, the flatline, like the BMX racing is not judged. It's just time. 
I think BMX is awesome. I, I think it's in general, it's worth if we're only allowed a certain number of events or a certain number of medals. I think it's worth pulling a couple track events for the BMX. Frankly, BMX is just a lot more accessible. Uh, it's a lot cooler. It's more likely to get more kids on bikes. I think that those are all great things. I think in general, that's fine. I'm just a little bit salty that swimming, when it already had 10 million of them, and yet we're not allowed to have an individual pursuit gold medal, which is, to me, that's like, remember when the Olympics got rid of wrestling? And, you know, which is literally one of the original sports. To me, the individual pursuit is kind of like an, it's, it's an original sport. Uh, it's an original part of track racing and not having a medal for that and just lumping it into this Omnium thing is... It's just a real shame. All right. Well, I haven't, hope I haven't butchered that too badly. You have uh, Kaylee. Again, I'm not. What? <laughs> you have Kaylee. I'm sure I have. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I would never, ever consider myself like an actual track racer. I've just done, done at le- I've done all these events at least once, basically, uh, and some of them a lot more than that. If you're still not 100% clear on what the track events are, which which is which, Go and check out Matt's article on the website. It's really good. That'll break it down. You you can take your time reading it. Yeah. Learn loads of stuff there. It's much uh, much further in depth than what I was trying to do just now. Uh, if I did get anything wrong, which is likely in the track events. Leave it in Matt's comments. <laughs> let me know. <laughs> let me know. <laughs> yeah, maybe just drop drop a comment into uh into Matt's story and say, well, it's a good thing somebody at Cycling Tips knows what they're talking about. <laughs> because again, I'm not a tracky. Uh I was never never particularly good at it, to be honest. Still somewhat astounded by how fast they can make a track bike go. I think four minute, four minute individual pursuit, which is what Ashton Lambie's going for soon. He's he's doing the whole he wants to break four, you know, kind of like uh like like run in like the running mile, you know, I can't even imagine that over four k. <laughs> anyway, all right, that's it from us today. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for more on those controversies we talked about the uh, the GB bike and the handlebars and the kinesio tape. We're gonna be doing some reporting on those on the site. Keep an eye out. And we'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. See you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.